please stay tuned to the end of this program or see the show notes for important information regarding today's speakers and the content of this podcast. Hey everyone, welcome to episode three of Allergy Watch, a roundup of the latest in the field of allergy and immunology by the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. For today's episode, we'll be reviewing three articles about food allergy from the May-June 2019 issue of Allergy Watch. Allergy Watch is a bi-monthly publication which provides research summaries to college members from the major journals in allergy and immunology. To subscribe to Allergy Watch, head over to the college website at college.acaai.org slash publications slash Allergy Watch. This is part two of a review of the May-June 2019 issue of Allergy Watch. Um, my name is Jerry Lee. I'm an assistant professor at Emory University and I am an assistant editor for Algae Wash. And as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Marin Kalangara. Hi, this is uh, Marin Kalangara. I'm an assistant professor of allergy and immunology at Emory University. And our rotating chair, uh, once again, is joined by the editor-in-chief of Algae Watch and a past president of the college, Stan Feynman. Hi, it's great to be here. I'm also uh, an adjunct faculty at uh, Emory, so I'm pleased to be here too, thanks. And. Uh, critical part of the allergy immunology training program. I would say you are definitely the third leg of the stool if it's pediatric, medicine, mm -hmm. and community. And clearly, uh, Stan Feynman has certainly done a lot as, I'm the program director for the fellowship, by the way, so I have to like <laughs> state how important Stan is for our training program. Um, so I think we were gonna focus on food allergy test, uh, testing and evaluation. Um, so I think, Stan, you had a very interesting study about new testing methods for food allergy. Okay, so the first uh, article to discuss is, was uh, presented by David Kahn. The headline is, Can BAT Eliminate the Need for Milk Challenges? And he is citing an article by uh, Runneman's uh, Kurtz, um, I may be mispronouncing it, in the Clinical Experimental Allergy Journal um, that was uh, in, in, this past year. And um, the title of the article is The Basophil Activation Test Reduces the Need for a Food Challenge Test in Children Suspected of IgE-Mediated Cow's Milk Allergy. So a little bit about, about the background, of course. You know, the only way we really have to uh, confirm a diagnosis of a food allergy is a double-blind, placebo-controlled uh, food challenge. And, um, you know, it's cumbersome, it's difficult. Uh, we really are not doing double-blind uh, food challenges in our office uh, clinically. Um, you know, we do them for, as part of research studies. But, you know, right now we do a lot of the food challenges, open, open label. Um, but it's very, still very cumbersome, and we're always concerned uh, about the risk for anaphylaxis. And so you have to be careful who you uh, choose. And the basophil activation test has been um, a relatively new um, option on the uh, research uh, uh, level, at least for food allergy. And uh, in fact, about a, a year or two ago, or maybe several years ago now, uh, there were some articles uh, uh, by Gideon Lack, who was looking at BAT for peanut allergy. So this has been done before. Um, it's still not mainstream. I don't, we don't have it available for clinical use. But this was a study looking at uh, food, uh, cow's milk allergy. So this was a prospective study uh, looking at 86 children who had suspected cow's milk allergy by their history. And uh, 
the researchers felt these were candidates for the double-blind placebo-controlled food challenge. Uh, interestingly, 90% of the children did undergo a food challenge and a specific IgE measurement, and the BAT was performed using a particular uh, technique, and they used a dry powder cow's milk extract that did contain uh, the three uh, major antigens or allergens in cow's milk, which includes casein, alpha-lactalbumin, and beta-lactoglobulin. So um, the, uh, the analysis really uh, included the total of the 97 BAT tests. Nine children had the test twice. And then the double-blind placebo-controlled food challenge was positive in 18 of the 36 IgE-sensitized patients compared to five of the 61 non-IgE-sensitized patients. Uh, the results with both the double-blind placebo-controlled food challenges and the BAT were unequivocal in 80% of the cases, and the BAT was 100% sensitive and specific in the IgE-sensitized patients, which is very unusual for a lab study. So in contrast, all but five of the 50 non-IgE-sensitized children with unequivocal results had negative findings on both the double-blind placebo-controlled and the BAT. So these patients generally had mild responses to cow's milk, uh, typically associated with a non-IgE-mediated reaction. A lot of them had tummy aches. Um, and uh, these patients had relatively mild responses, as we said. So in children who are clinically suspected of having cow's milk allergy, who have a positive specific IgE, the BAT can be helpful as a diagnostic, uh, you know, because of its 100% sensitivity and specificity in these patients, uh, as opposed to the, uh, even the double-blind placebo-controlled challenge, um, you know, which is sometimes equivocal, and the kids sometimes had a little, uh, uh, a few mild symptoms that were probably non-IgE-mediated. And then David Kahn's comment, of course, was that the researchers found that the uh, remarkable 100% specificity, 100% sensitivity for the BAT in the milk-sensitized patients with a history of milk allergy is, is really unique. And the data, um, you know, should be interpreted with caution because there were only 36 patients who actually had the milk-specific IgE. Some of the children sort of had inconclusive tests and maybe some of them, the, the basophil test might not have been that, you know, evaluated. But obviously, we need larger studies. We need uh, commercial availability. And, uh, you know, so, so it's an interesting test. It does, uh, the BAT does look specifically for anaphylaxis. And I know it's been used in, 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 in peanut allergies, I said. But, uh, you know, we look forward to having it as an option for our food allergy patients. So I will be the first to admit that I had no idea we were even using BAT for food allergy. Um, but it's interesting. And if it does indeed eliminate the need for positive challenges, I think it could potentially have a high degree of utility in our clinics. I've been using um, BAT mostly for the evaluation of perioperative uh, drug allergies specifically. Um, I use it in conjunction with uh, skin testing to neuromuscular blocking agents using non-irritating concentrations just to sort of corroborate skin test results and help sort of outline my recommendations to use alternative agents. Yeah, it would be great to have a, a, a test that could you know, predict anaphylaxis so mm -hmm. we don't have to put our patients at potential risk. So, um, you know, the, the Dave's comment 
suggest that sometimes the test is not available or maybe inconclusive. How, how often do you run into that problem when you're evaluating drug allergy? Right. I noted that, that in this study specifically, I think there were uh, 13% that who are non-responders. Um, so to be honest, I ordered these tests pretty infrequently and I haven't run into that issue yet. In fact, I didn't even know that was a problem. Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, uh, again, I, I think um, uh, I've never ordered this test. So um, it's very good to hear your perspective, Marin. And, 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 and certainly, you know, we're always looking for that holy grail. You know, we've been, you know, people, that's why people are so um, fixated on, you know, cutoffs and, and, and rules of thumb, you know, we really, really would love to have this magical number. This is what we're supposed to do. If it's, you know, we should challenge for this number, we should avoid for this number. But, you know, all the time we're seeing so many patients where, with especially with a great history, the, the test all, could have steered you the wrong way if you use some rule of thumb. But the, a lot of these patients can definitely um, tolerate the uh, uh, the the food and, and and so having a test that ha- that doesn't run into those problems is is highly highly desirable for sure. Yeah, we're all struggling with the patient who is quote sensitized, yes, but not clinically, you know, ato- uh, not clinically reactive to the food. Right. I mean, and my experience with drug allergy has been that um, so far they've used BAT for several different uh, medications. They've used it for proton pump inhibitors, some antibiotics, uh, neuromuscular blocking agents. The sensitivity is supposed to be lower than the specificity. Um, and I haven't had any positive test results yet. But if it indeed were positive, then it would be extremely useful in outlining recommendations. Yeah. Oh, that again! Thank you for that. That's a great article, Stan. So, uh, Marin, sounds like you're uh, we're switching gears to uh, the relationship between food allergy and eczema. Right. So, I chose to review a paper by Epen et al. that was published earlier this year in Annals, um, and reviewed by Dr. Uh, Hernandez Trujillo in Allergy Watch that highlights the risk of food avoidance in patients with atopic dermatitis. And we often see this where children with atopic dermatitis end up on these highly restrictive diets that exclude foods that they've either never eaten or once tolerated and are now avoiding because of positive IgE testing, despite the recognition that there is really no high quality evidence to support these elimination diets in atopic dermatitis. Uh, Parents often end up doing this because of concern for food-triggered disease. However, there have been several recent reports describing an increased risk in acute allergic reactions to foods following elimination for prolonged periods to help control possible food-triggered eczema that had been previously consumed without incidence. And of note, in these reports, there was no improvement in eczema symptoms following food elimination. And this particular study sort of adds to this evidence and examined the frequency of failed in-office challenges to foods that had been similarly consumed uneventfully prior to elimination to treat possible food-triggered eczema based on a positive skin test or in vitro testing. 
The authors did a retrospective analysis of 442 challenges to the top five allergenic foods over the course of about six years and studied outcomes among children with atopic germ among whom food was eliminated to treat their eczema. And this was compared with failure rates of challenges in children with IgE-mediated food allergy and also those who were sensitized without prior introduction. Nearly three-fourths of the challenges were done because of a history of food allergy and only 10% for this uh, food-triggered atopic derm. The overall failure rate of challenges was about 20%, and the failure rate for those avoiding a food because of atopic dermatitis was 13%. This was not significantly different from those avoiding food because of other reasons. And again, there was no difference in the duration of avoidance in the atopic dermatitis group between those who passed challenges and those who failed, and the median was about two years in both groups. Uh, tolerance to these foods specifically was lost after the food had been withdrawn from the diet and then not reintroduced onto the food challenge. The authors did note that one of their drawbacks was the IgE criteria used in offering food challenges, and there has been recent data from a separate report showing that the IgE levels that strongly predict food allergy in patients with severe dermatitis are well above the commonly used 95% positive predictive value thresholds, and thus children may have been excluded who could have passed the food challenge and altering overall results. Uh, what I thought was really interesting was that the authors found that this loss of tolerance happened as early as three months after withdrawal of a food item for this reason. And for this reason, they suggested close monitoring and reassessment of the skin within four weeks of implementing these dietary changes. And they also suggest that patients with food-triggered atopic derm warrant an emergency action plan and self-injectable epinephrine. I thought there were several take-home messages in this uh, paper, the big one being that a clear risk factor for developing immediate reactions in atopic dermatitis is the avoidance of culprit foods. And importantly, this can happen as soon as within three months of elimination. And especially taken in conjunction with evidence for a decreasing role for diet in propagating atopic dermatitis, we must carefully consider whether strict elimination is even necessary. Another option that has been proposed by other authors is to keep a tolerable amount of the food trigger in the diet since the risks of immediate reactions on reintroduction may outweigh the value of elimination in atopic dermatitis management. Another thing that struck me was that we really need better predictive value of allergen-specific IgE tests in patients with eczema that can more effectively discriminate whether the patient is allergic or not or maybe we can even start doing basophil activation testing in this population. <laughs> yeah. um, since these uh, decision points may be much higher than those that apply to a less atopic population. But the bottom line is that we should probably be more aggressive about offering food challenges in patients with atopic dermatitis and these elevated serum IgE levels. I would, I'm sure you both agree with you know, we struggle with these patients. I mean, I just saw one yesterday. You know, the, the young, a young infant came in with uh, atopic dermatitis. Uh, mom was limiting, you know, egg, milk, you know, all kinds of things in the diet because it showed up on a immunocap that was done by the pediatrician. Mm -hmm. And you know, the question is, you know, how how you know what what do we do with these patients? I mean, it's it's a real challenge. I wish we had better tools 
you know, to tell them, you mm-hmm. know, uh, is it a true allergy or, or not? And, you know, I, I think when we take that step further, you know, this is a very common referral we get from the pediatrician. And, you know, when I do in-services uh, to pediatricians, you know, we're just doing a meet and greet, hey, refer to us, you know, that sort of thing. This comes up a lot. And, you know, really when the patient is asking for food allergy testing, I think what the patient is really asking for, or the parents, is why is this happening to my child? Mm-hmm. Do you know? They want an explanation of where did this rash come from? And so really all the information that we've learned recently about the role of skin barrier function as the cause of eczema is sort of the key piece of information that could potentially head that off at the pass. So at least in some of my messaging, and I'm not saying I'm always successful, is that redirecting the family to answer the primary question, why is this happening, right? Um, Which is skin barrier dysfunction. And then I would say, number two, most family members by now have been enough blogs or Google or so on to learn about the impact of the LEAP study. At least if they're not familiar with it, they could quickly Google it after leave my office, right? And and if you sort of clearly demonstrate the benefit of keeping in the diet and the potential of using medical therapy to allow your child to be protected from food allergy and to have a full diverse diet and not be restricted, um, some parents do buy into that. But, you know, obviously it's close follow-up, it's, it's explanations, um, but clearly empowering more pediatricians to have those initial conversations of teaching about the origins of eczema and, and the importance of medical therapy to allow your child to have a full diverse diet and side effect wise preventing food allergy. I, you know, this is sort of something I've been very interested in. You know, we have an existing, the college has an existing atopic dermatitis quality improvement module for allergists. And so right now we're exploring, can we deliver that same uh, educational module to primary care pediatricians? Because it's quite a simple module, but also include some of the messaging and education. So stay tuned. I, I think we're, we're talking to the ABP to get that approved, but that's something I'd love to see to, to, to empower pediatricians to sort of not reach for that food allergy panel as their first thing, but this is the initial intervention. That'd be great. So, I mean, you know. and, and I agree with Jerry. You see the same parallel in adults with chronic hives. Where they're, Why is this happening? Mm-hmm, why is this <clears throat> happening? And always searching for a food cause. So. Yeah, and so that internal, um, you know, the, it's like the fact that hives can be an internally driven versus externally driven mm-hmm. is, you know, is, is sort of a gap and, and, and hard, sometimes hard to convince. But, you know. Over time, I think you develop a relationship with someone and, and just introduce them to a concept they've not considered. Sometimes it's enough. Good. Sometimes we need a test. You're right. <laughs> Good article. Oh, no, it's a wonderful article. Okay, so um, I, I, I have the, the last article they're going to review. This is from uh, one of the most sort of well-known 
prestigious allergist Donald Leung. Um, and again, it's a privilege to sort of see his work over time and his contributions to, you know, JACI, the, now the annuals, and, and, and sort of elevating our specialty. So this was published in Science and Translational uh, Medicine um, this year, and the title of the article is The Non-Lesional Skin Surface Distinguishes Atopic Dermatitis with Food Algae as a Unique Endotype. So, you know, we've now talked about the relationship between eczema and food allergy. Um, you know, the dual exposure hy hypothesis states that existing eczema is a setup for the development of food allergy and therefore identifying what biomarkers or endotype of the skin that leads patients to develop food allergy would help us intervene even early before we're doing early food introduction. Because, you know, we, we know that certain studies have shown that egg sensitization can occur even before they even started solids, you know? And, and you know, I remember the Palmer study that showed that, you know, about 30, you know, 33% of the patients had to drop out of the study even at age four months because they were already allergic to egg. So clearly we need sort of ways to identify patients even earlier than that. And, and since we can't get all patients with eczema, what are some ways to do it uh, early, but also non-invasively? So because, you know, you know, skin biopsy is not going to be an option for infants. Parents are not going to have their newborn baby biopsy to assess for this. So the non-invasive method that the Leon group uh, decide to use is this repetitive tape stripping method. So essentially what that means is, is that um, by repetitive sort of uh, application of tape and removal, you can collect uh, samples of the skin in a very non-invasive fashion and do assessments for different metrics. Um, you can um, measure transepidermal water loss. You can look at pro uh, skin proteins and skins. You can do metabolomics. You can look for infections. So looking at a wide, uh, wide library of variables, what drops out when we're trying to distinguish of the patients with eczema who will develop food allergy and who will not. And so what they did was they got non-lesional skin from atopic dermatitis children who both had food allergy versus patients who um, did not and also completely non-atopic children. And what they found, um, as you can imagine, is that even the non-lesional skin, we're talking about the skin that has no evidence of rash, did have evidence of increased transepidermal water loss compared to patients with atopic dermatitis, but um, you know not for uh, but not food allergy, and also the non-atopic children. Those food allergic children also had decreased filaggrin, which we know is a key protein uh, and key risk factor for uh, food allergy, and a lower proportion of omega-hydroxy fatty acid fingosine ceramide content, as well as changes in the stratum corneum lamellar bilayer structure responsible for barrier homeostasis. Now, they also looked at other markers, so they did see increased abundance of Staph aureus, and specific keratin expression increases. Uh, keratins 5, 14, and 6 were uh, particularly identified, and that sort of indicates hyperproliferative keratinocytes. 
They also looked at the transcriptome, and so they see this sort of gene profile that increases the expressions of genes of dendritic cells and the type 2 pathways. And so if they do a network analysis, they find that keratin, keratins 5, 14, and 6, like I mentioned before, is positively correlated with food allergy, where, as well as the identification of certain flagrant Brecken products would be negatively associated with food allergy. So now that we have sort of an idea of what the endotype profile of children with AD who develop food allergy versus the ones who don't, can we use that information and develop a way that we can identify children at risk very early and then potentially do an even earlier intervention so that, um, you know, we can protect more children before they even come and see the, the pediatrician asking the food allergy question. Um, and, and, you know, so before we even get the chance to do early food introduction. Um, you know, this is so exciting that we're able to get a lot more information. And, and this study gets me, um, you know, looking forward to f- future sort of publications from this group to see if we can refine uh, this assay in a way that we can make an impact on the food allergy beyond what we've already done earlier and earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's really interesting. And actually, it ties in very nicely with this um, recent um, longitudinal study that was that's actually still in press in Jackie um, that talks about um, the presence of Staph aureus colonization in patients with uh, atopic dermatitis and the predisposition between this colonization and food allergy to peanut or egg allergy. And, uh, and this is independent of the severity of atopic dermatitis at baseline. Um, so it's an interesting thought as to whether, I guess, looking at sort of baseline factors could sort of help to predict and possibly undertake like preemptive measures to prevent. Yeah, I thought it was very clever to do this uh, skin stripping to get the sample. Mm-hmm. And the fact that the, uh, even in non-lesional skin, they detected uh, problems, which, you know, that's really not on our, you know, our, our radar screen. We usually tell them to put the moisturizers, especially right. where the lesions are, but mm. we probably need to tell them all over. Oh yeah. Yeah, I mean the abnormalities in non-lesional skin and atopic dermatitis, like have been, you know, were described a few years ago by the dermatologists, and uh, and I think so. Both abnormalities in non-lesional skin, as well as subclinical inflammation in previously affected areas, after sort of superficial resolution of the inflammation. So, I usually tell my patients to not just continue the. Uh, topical steroids until resolution, but rather continue it for a few days after to address that possible like subclinical inflammation and also use sort of proactive intermittent therapy for those patients with severe disease to address again subclinical inflammation. Yeah. And and so, you know, as we sort of gain more knowledge about this relationship between um, risk factors for food allergy, and again, the better treatment, the, the more uh, understanding about eczema and how to to treat it, you know, my biggest curiosity is, um, you know, as we we figure out the best interventions to treat eczema and potentially prevent food allergy, you know, perhaps, you know, that big waiting list we have for food allergy, food challenges right now, 
you know, my hope is, you know, that'd be something we'll, I'll tell a story about uh, sort of in the <laughs> twilight of my career. That's sort of, and, and again, it just gets me really excited. So um, anyways, uh, that's the end of the episode. Uh, once again, I really want to thank Marin and Stan for, uh, you know, preparing the articles and giving their expert commentary. I also want to thank the college for sponsoring this format to uh, provide education and, and, dis- uh, and again, pr- promote edu- uh, discussions amongst allergists. Now, you know, we're still very new. Uh, uh, this is our new venture. So please send us your uh, feedback. Uh, the email address again is allergytalk at acaai.org. The ACAAI is presenting this podcast for educational purposes only. It is not medical advice or intended to replace the judgment of a licensed physician. The college is not responsible for any claims related to the procedures, professionals, products, or methods discussed in the podcast, and it does not approve or endorse any products, professionals, services, or methods that might be referenced. Today's speakers have the following disclosures. Dr. Lee was on an advisory board for Tiva. Dr. Kalangarda has received consulting fees from AstraZeneca, and Dr. Feynman has been a speaker for AZBI Shire and has done research for AIMUN, DBV, Shire, and Regeneron.